Hello and welcome to another episode of the Champions of Wellness podcast, the show for leaders focused on improving mental health and well-being in the workplace. We thank you so much for listening. I'm Alex Slack and with me is PJ Calkins. Thanks, Alex. Today's episode, we will be discussing physician burnout and tactics healthcare leaders can deploy to help their struggling staff. Alex recently had a discussion with Liz Farron from Vital Work Life about the impactful work she is doing over there to help physicians. But before we jump into that conversation, a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by one of the biggest supporters of Champions of Wellness, the Wellbeing Index. If you've been a regular listener to the podcast or have checked out Champions of Wellness publication, you know that the experts and leaders that we talk to on a regular basis stress the importance of measuring well-being. Whether we're talking to chief wellness officers, medical directors, professional coaches, psychologists, and researchers, they all consistently say that accurate measurement is the first and perhaps most important step in supporting employee mental health. The Wellbeing Index was invented by Mayo Clinic as a simple nine-question assessment to gauge the well-being of providers. The online tool not only lets clinicians measure their well-being in less than one minute, but also compare the results to peers and national averages. They can access resources to help improve their mental health and track their progress over time, all while remaining completely anonymous. The Wellbeing Index then delivers customizable reporting to administrators, allowing organizations to see where distress is coming from and measure the effectiveness of their wellness initiatives. We were lucky enough to have a few team members from the Wellbeing Index on the show. So if you're interested in learning more, you can go back and take a listen to episode 11, or you can visit mywellbeingindex.org to read testimonials, Wellbeing Index case studies, validation articles, and even take a free demo of the tool online. Go to mywellbeingindex.org to learn why over 800 organizations around the world use the Wellbeing Index to measure staff well-being and go beyond burnout. That's mywellbeingindex.org. Now back to the episode. Today, I am joined by Liz Farron, who will be having a chat with me on the topic of peer support and coaching and its impacts on well-being in the workplace. Liz Farron is currently the physician practice lead at Vital Work Life, where she provides training and consultation to healthcare administrators and individual practitioners in the areas of stress management, navigating change, and effective communication. She has contributed to the development and analysis of Vital Work Life's national surveys, has presented on Physician Wellbeing in National and Regional Conferences, and has been published in several medical journals. Finally, Liz has completed programs in mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindful self-compassion offered by the Center of Spirituality at the University of Minnesota and the Transform Your Life Resiliency Program offered by Amit Sood of Mayo Clinic. Welcome, Liz. I'm so happy you could join me today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Alex. So, Liz, I would like to start us off with this big top of the mountain view on well-being in the workplace. It seems like we've reached that peak where most organizations are aware of the mental wellness crisis, especially with the after effects caused by COVID-19 pandemic. And companies are actively implementing and tweaking wellness programs. But I could be wrong. Are, are industry leaders still making that uphill climb to prioritize wellness? No, it's interesting. I think that um, I've been in the area of well-being in the workplace for probably close to 30 years and so have seen an evolution 
Um, and definitely, I think there's far greater awareness than there was when I first entered the field about um, how well-being can impact uh, productivity, can, can impact people's desire to stay in their current position, can impact relationships at work, customer satisfaction, patient satisfaction, all of that. Um, but there are things that can get in the way, right? Uh, budgetary concerns, uh, particularly after the pandemic when so many businesses have been hit hard by that. And sometimes it's it's benefit-related programs and resources that can get cut. Mm-hmm. Now, you now coming out of this pandemic, as you mentioned, there's there's this feeling of back to normalcy where there's positive feelings. People are re-engaging with the world. They're resuming their pre-pandemic activities. But for healthcare staff, I would imagine it's like coming home from war. What what yeah. can we what can we expect from healthcare workers to be experiencing emotionally and professionally? I think it was, it, it, it may have started prior to the pandemic, but certainly got a lot more attention, this whole sort of moral injury mm-hmm. concept, which interesting that you mentioned war because that's where the term came out of. It was initially uh, brought forward from, from, people who were fighting in the war and who needed to do things and make decisions and take actions that were against their moral code in during wartime. And that's come forward more so since the pandemic for healthcare professionals who had to make some very difficult decisions. Uh, who should get a ventilator? Who should... Uh, who should they take life-saving measures on and who should they not? Uh, situations they had never had to deal with before. Um, what about the risks to themselves and the risks to their family members? And how do you make choices? How do you prioritize around that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that took a great toll on people. And, you know, you think about that coming on top of the stress and burnout levels that were already being experienced at work, right? Depending on what study you looked at, you would see 42 to 55% of physicians uh, saying that they were experiencing burnout. Well, that was before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So you add that on. And uh, yeah, I think you see a pretty worn out workforce. There's certainly the immediate relief. Yes, I think they feel it just like anybody else does, right? Uh, but but beyond that, I think there is the longer term uh, wear and tear that mm-hmm. needs to be rebuilt. And I think I was I was watching an interview you did way back. I think it was almost I think it was 2015, where you mentioned a physician shortage that we were headed for. And yeah. do you feel that that's still the case, even more so because of the pandemic? Or have has there been this? community feeling of, wow, you know, we did come together and achieve this goal and you're seeing an influx of more physicians coming up the ranks? Well, I can't speak to that. I don't know if there's been an influx of physicians coming up the ranks. Um, What I can say is that yes and, I mean, both are true, right? So there, in terms of any silver linings, yeah, I think that probably some work teams were strengthened. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, some some practice 
communities were strengthened. We're all in this together. Um, beyond that, I think there was a lot more permission giving to clinicians who perhaps had been reticent about uh, working on their well-being or seeking help for themselves. There was a lot of permission giving. It became so normal, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It was recognized, oh, well, of course you're feeling stressed. Of course you're overwhelmed. Of course this is affecting your mental health. And, you know, you should get help. And so there was a shift there as well that was kind of a positive thing. And you at the same time, go, go, go ahead. Oh, no, please continue. Uh, so, so you know, so the other side of that, though, is, again, that wear and tear. And uh, I, I can't tell you uh, research or study-wise, but I think there, for people who are in this field, there is a, a fear that we're going to see a, a mass exodus mm-hmm. um, from clinicians. And you wrote an outstanding article in the AAPC on AAPC, excuse me, on how to manage organizational retention in healthcare. And in that article, you referenced the importance of positive organizational culture. What is organizational culture and why is it so important for administrators to focus on it? So um, the the thinking about stress and burnout and the ways to prevent that, diminish it, is that it's kind of a three-pronged approach, right? And so part of it is looking at culture, uh, culture of well-being. Part of it is looking at workflow efficiencies that can certainly drive stress and burnout. Um, And then another part of it is personal resiliency. And so the culture part is, is the importance of people feeling respected, that their work is being valued, that they're important and that they can trust that their organization and colleagues and leaders are going to be supportive, are going to have their backs, are going to take an interest in their opinions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we've known for some time that those kinds of things can be more valuable even than how much someone makes, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, that, that, That how the relationship they have with their leadership and their colleagues can be the very most important thing. And I think the same is true in medicine. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you brought up you know, that feeling of being heard because you also stress the importance of communication and transparency as the ultimate way for organizations to retain their employees, because people not only know that they want to be heard, they want to make sure that they are part of decisions being made about them. So, but when you have an organization as big as a hospital system with hundreds, if not thousands of employees, how do you make all those voices heard? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So just backing up for a moment, again, I think regardless of field, regardless of industry, people want to have say about the work at hand. They want to have some sense of control over the work they're doing. That's just kind of a normal, natural thing, right? Right. Now you look at medicine and a couple different things. You look at the level of training that physicians have had. Uh, You know, they've gone through college, they've gone through medical school, they've gone through an internship and residency and sometimes a fellowship to be able to make uh, proper and appropriate and advisable patient care decisions, um, it's 
it, it's super important that their opinions and their knowledge is being tapped into when it comes to exceptional patient care. Um, also considering life and death kinds of decisions that they're making to not have some say in the matter. Well, obviously they have say, but to have a, um, to not have a, an adequate level of influence over medical decisions is, is very frustrating and even frightening to a lot of clinicians. And so you're right with large healthcare systems, that's part of the issue, right? And, and the fact that how busy everyone is at every level of the organization and certain certain types of disconnection that there is that you're going to have in a large healthcare system like this. So I think it starts at the top, right? And um, that there has to be a commitment and a, a, a priority. It has to be made a priority, uh, communication, uh, interaction, transparency at the very top, and then structured in such a way that you can have important communication throughout the organization. Um, you also may need to have more committees uh, where that are topical and where uh, there is adequate representation and input into decisions that will impact the care of patients. So let's talk about some of those solutions that the top leadership can implement. And one of those, and one thing is Vital Work Life is well known for, is peer coaching. So I've talked to several guests who have put a focus on peer support groups and peer support apps. But what is involved with the peer coaching program? So peer coaching is one component of a larger well-being program that we offer to healthcare organizations and then they uh, offer it to their employees as a benefit and they promote it so people know about it so that they can independently reach out and get help for themselves. Um, so it, it includes peer coaching, it includes counseling, it includes a virtual concierge, uh, there's some legal and financial consultation, you know, there's ma many different aspects to it. And peer coaching is one of those. And we provide up to six sessions of confidential coaching uh, to individuals who, who reach out for help for themselves. Um, when they reach out, they have an intake with a licensed behavioral health professional who conducts a well-being assessment, who is looking to see if there might be other aspects of our program that would be helpful as well, uh, such as counseling. And then it, it tries to help the find out enough about the person's background to make a match with a coach. Uh, so that uh, we find a coach that's going to be best suited for the particular interests and needs that they may have. And then we uh, connect them up with their coach. We give the coach some background information and they're kind of on their own to, to have the coaching sessions. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously you can't provide any specifics about individual coaching sessions, but You've, you've done a lot of these and you've trained a lot uh, of these coaches. What, what are some of the common patterns? What do people need the most from coaching? What are they hoping to get out of it? I think for many people, at the point that they reach out, they're feeling like they need something. They're not even entirely certain what that might be, 
but they know they're very unhappy with their current status. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of times it's work-life balance related where they feel like their work is consuming them and they're not finding any time for themselves uh, to pursue other interests and it's affecting their family life. And they want to find a way that they can continue to practice and not do it at the cost of their own well-being or the cost of their family relationships. I'd say that's huge. Um, beyond that, I think there's people feeling as though they're losing their confidence. They, not, they don't feel like they're, they're able to be as effective in their work, be as effective in their relationships, be the kind of parent they want to be, be the kind of spouse they want to be. They're, um, they're questioning themselves and their decisions. They're fearful about making mistakes because of all that they have to accomplish and all the things they have on their minds. Um, you know, they're just generally highly stressed and they want to find a way to reduce that. You know, I'm curious, We mental health is getting such a huge spotlight these days and the importance of consistent mental health and mental health programs. I know you mentioned that some of your uh, specific programs come with a certain number of sessions, but would the world be a better place if everyone had a peer coach for a lifetime that they could go to? Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> and I think, you know, for for many of us who are professionals, we're probably our own worst critic, right? I mean, that's just kind of part of the deal. We have, uh, we have high expectations of ourselves Mm -hmm. and, and we want to do a really good job. And I think that we, we tend to internalize when we're not able to, um, to produce the way that we want to, we can take it personally and we can feel as though um, we're not as accomplished as we want to be. And I think a lot of times talking with a coach, there's normalizing that happens and, and there's a mirror effect and people begin to have a much more realistic view of themselves and the work that they're doing and, and confidence increases and, and that's a very positive thing. The other thing is self-awareness. Um, many of the people who have gone through our coaching program will say that's the most valuable thing that they got out of it. You know, you got to know what you want to, to have happen, what you need, what would be helpful to you before you can take any steps. And if you're so busy uh, that you don't have time to even think about those things, it's, it's difficult to get what you want. Well, it's actually a relief to hear that because you wouldn't want to be put into a, a cookie cutter program. It's not the one size fits all is that I'm, I'm assuming that these no. coaching sessions are extremely tailored to your very specific needs. Absolutely. And, and, and really the, the goals of coaching are determined by the client. Uh, and so I think an initial session tends to be more just the individual being able to share everything that is creating challenges for them and to be able to talk about how they'd like things to be different. Mm -hmm. And then knowing it's six sessions, 
the the client and the coach talk about what would be reasonable within this period of time, what can be accomplished. And and the the client is very involved in saying, well, in my particular case, here's the things that I want to prioritize. Here's the things in my life and in my work world that I think um, I could have some influence on. The focus is always what is within your scope of control. Let's not spin around things that aren't in your control. Let's figure out what is there and that you can put some time and energy into, and that's really going to make an impact. So it sounds like you do a little bit of work of building resiliency to a, a certain point. Is that, is that correct? I think you've I spoken about, absolutely. yeah. Well, I, I, as I mentioned, your introduction, you have completed programs specific to mindfulness practices, and we've had several guests in the podcast who have had given great advice when it comes to mindfulness practices and inserting them into your daily life. But people still struggle to make this routine. I got to tell you, I've talked to a lot of people who gave me really good, quick tips. Have I yes. done them yet? I haven't. And I don't know. And I don't know why. Like, I don't know why it's so, you know, it's that whole procrastination of, oh, I'll get to it. I'll eventually start, you know, giving myself self affirmations every day. You know, I always plan to and I never do. So is yes. this, is there something that, the organizations can do on their side to help employees get started and normalize mindfulness on in the workplace and with the hope that they could eventually insert it into their personal life? Yeah, I don't think there's any question that um, making time and space available to take on well-being exercises and practices is super important. And um, during people's busy day, if you can give them, uh, you know, some some quick tips that they can try while it, and maybe having an entire team working on it, right? That buddy system is wonderful. So, um, you know, or if there's a huddle, a, a surgical huddle at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day where some some easy mindfulness practices are built into that, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, and and. You know, it's it's starting small, right? Because if the if the practice is too extensive, if it's going to take too much time and energy, it's just not going to happen. And I feel like there's still almost a stigma towards mental health. You know, thinking to yourself, "Oh, well, I don't I don't really need to take ten minutes and meditate." You know, that's I, I'm beyond yeah. that. You know, yeah. is, do you find that that's the case? Yeah, I would say this. It's really interesting you bring up stigma uh, because, you know, back to the peer coaching, I think one of the reasons that that's been so valuable is that it carries less stigma than mental health resources that people oftentimes get as much as they would in talking to a counselor, although it's certainly a different resource, but they're not afraid that they're going to have to report that when they're recredentialing or when they're renewing their license, right? Uh, and and it, it just simply carries less of that stigma with it as mental health services that, that can seem like, you say, maybe it's kind of a weakness, so I shouldn't have to do this. I should be able to just figure this out on my own. I should be able uh, to have well-being without needing to, to seek out any resources or, right. or do any practices. Well, last question for you, Liz. You've been absolutely wonderful. When our listeners finish this episode, would 
What is one thing they can do to improve their mental well-being for themselves or their colleagues, even just a little bit? What can they do today to improve their tomorrow? I think the most important thing is to set a few goals, to sit down, spend five minutes uh, thinking about what kinds of steps they think they could take that's within their control that um, that could improve their well-being even tomorrow. Sometimes it's even just one thing. What we know is that people are 10 times more likely to make behavior change if they actually have a goal. And it doesn't have to be a lofty one. It can simply be, um, I'm going to spend five minutes in the morning for me without interruptions, without focusing on work, without focusing on my kids. Uh, maybe I'm just going to sit outside and enjoy the sunshine. Maybe I'm going to spend five minutes reading a book. Maybe I'm going to try a five-minute mindfulness practice that I that I Google and, and find and, and follow. Um, but, but having a goal makes it much more likely that you're going to do it. It's much more important than just having good intentions. That is wonderful advice. Thank you for that, Liz. So everyone, take those five minutes today. Set up those goals to yourself. Pause Netflix and Hulu for just five minutes and take care of that. All right. Well, I'd like to thank Liz Farron for joining me today. For more information on Vital Work Life and the benefits of peer coaching and other programs and resources, check out the show notes at championsofwellness.com. Liz, I appreciate your time today and good luck and good mental health. Thank you. That was a great conversation, Alex. Liz shared so many great takeaways. I found it so shocking to hear, again, and I've heard this stat in the past, she mentioned that even before the pandemic, there were a few studies that were reporting anywhere from 42 to 55% of physicians were experiencing burnout. Now, I've got to imagine that with the pandemic impacting healthcare so much, that has had to have had an impact on physicians as well, right? Exactly. I mean, while people are starting to come back to this feeling of normalcy, I think we're all trying to feel that, the healthcare employees are really exhibiting symptoms of this phase four of the pandemic, which I know some of our previous guests have talked about this mental wellness pandemic. They're really like soldiers coming back from war. This isn't over for them. And so organizations need to be that much more diligent about providing programs such as coaching, you know, such as peer support to aid their healthcare staff and really tend to these mental wounds from such a devastating year. All right, well, that about wraps it up for us. For more information on Vital Work Life and the work that Liz Farron is doing, check out the show notes at championsofwellness.com. For even more content focused on improving mental health and well-being in the workplace, visit our website and create your free account to get access to the Champions of Wellness video library, quarterly publication, blog, and more. Become a champion today and join us in leading the way to well-being. And subscribe to our podcast and follow Champions of Wellness on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.